0: off your device. That's soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, (sighs) well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name's Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. Today, I welcome back Gigi Langer, Gigi is the author of the award-winning book, 50 Ways to Worry Less Now, and is out with her new recent book, Love More Now. She has 37 years of sobriety and holds a PhD from Stanford University. Gigi is going to share her story of how she overcame worry, alcoholism, codependency, sex addiction, trauma, to discover love at the center. Drawing on her ideas from A Course in Miracles, The 12 Steps and Positive Psychology, Gigi shows you how to become a loving, open-hearted person with firm boundaries. I love talking with Gigi. She is just so open about her story. She lays it all out on the table, and at the same time is filled with so much hope and possibility. And you can see that with hard work on recovery, you can really create the life that you want that's meaningful to you and purposeful. And Gigi lays that all out And I just love talking with Gigi and absorbing her positive energy. So I hope you enjoy this episode as well and get a lot out of it. And if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. That really does help the podcast get found. And I really do appreciate it. It means a lot for me to read those reviews and see that the Addicted Mind podcast is having a positive impact on so many people. And you can follow us on Instagram Check us out at Addicted Mind Podcast. All right, everyone, let's start this episode. Well, welcome, Gigi Langer. Thank you so much. We had some technical difficulties getting this podcast started, and I'm excited that we're here. I'm excited that you're back to the Addicted Mind Podcast. You've been here before and talking about your last book, 50 Ways to Worry Less. Now, And you have a recent book out, Love More Now. And so we're going to talk about those things. We're going to talk about your story. And I'm just excited that you stuck with me uh, through all the technical difficulties we had. For some reason, technology wasn't cooperating with us. But we're here now. So Gigi, introduce yourself and and let's jump in.
1: Hi, I'm Gigi. And I am an author and a person in long-term recovery. And I live here in Naples, Florida now, but I'm originally from the Midwest, Chicago and the Detroit area. So I'm really happy to be here, too. And uh, I, ha- I had an equal part in the technical difficulties <laughs> for the last time. So, <laughs> But it's, it's determination,
0: right? It's determination right. To, to do it and not give up. and And that's what we did. So here we are. We're recording. We got it going. So. I think you have such a a powerful story and a lot of insight. And so let's start to talk about that and just give us kind of an update. And so people who haven't heard the other episode, which I would encourage them to listen to as well. But let's give a story for people now and kind of give context to all of this.
1: Okay, thank you. Well, I said I'm in long term sobriety and. You know, I really am so grateful that I haven't had a drink since January 11th, 1986. Wow. It was was a rough road getting there, although I didn't lose as many things as many people do. My main consequence was serial divorces and relationship (laughs) failure.
0: All right. All right.
1: So I was one of those people who thought that my Worth was nothing, you know, youngest in an alcoholic family became the little performer, always pretending to be, you know, pretending so that I could be liked, you know, just watching what other people did and doing that. And so one of the areas I did start to excel in was learning and so i did real well in school and the other kids in my family had not done as well so i became the little smarty so my my worth in a sense became achieving in you know in school settings then i discovered boys <laughs> then my worth became the man or the boy and i also grew up with that dream that you know if you play all the all the cards right you'll be happily married with two children and the picket fence and so on.
0: Right, you know, Because right. I
1: grew up, you know, in the 50s and 60s. And interestingly, I didn't use alcohol or drugs for a long time in my adulthood. I had occasional episodes in college where I had too much to drink and I got sick. But before that, I like would go home with my boyfriend's fraternity brother something really, you know, stupid, Right. Right. but, you know, very occasional. So it was like, oh, and then after college, I, I pretty much was with fairly straight people. And, but the problem was I just, I got married and then it didn't work. It turned out that husband had children and they came, I knew that, but I didn't know they were going to come and live with us. So, you know, I, I became a a, <laughs> a stepmother early on at like twenty three, and I just was not emotionally equipped, and I had no idea. Yeah. And I, I only lasted about a year. Later, that man acknowledged that he was gay, which good for him, and good thing right. I left, you know. Yeah. So
0: yeah, wow. Okay. Then
1: I, you know, I was that was the first kind of crash and burn that you know, the formula wasn't working. And so that summer, I was so discouraged that the dream had been smashed, that that's when I discovered, you know, marijuana and had my wild summer of 1973 and promiscuity, you know, because that wasn't, that was just coming into fashion, right? The woman, right? Could, yeah. you know, and so I had my wild times and then I met a fairly much older man. And he he wasn't into drugs and alcohol either. So we got married and we had a lot of international travel. And that's when occasionally at the exact wrong time, I would get drunk and be, you know, slobbering all over his boss or something. And And then he traveled a lot. So I, you know, we lived in these fancy places and one of them was Hawaii. And I ended up discovering marijuana and how great it was for killing the pain, emotional pain. So right. then, uh, you know, <laughs> that went on for a while. Then there was another man, that man, I didn't marry, but we decided that I, you know, it would be good for me to go to grad school. I didn't know what else to do. So I end up at Stanford University, working on a PhD in educational studies in psychology, because I was really interested in I had been a teacher. What makes people become good teachers? And well, little did I know, I ended up with all these really smart people in my program. And all wow. of a sudden, I was like, not uh, the first test I took, I failed. You know, I mean, wow. it was, I had to take all these statistics courses, you know, and I had been like a Spanish literature major, but fortunately, I had a little bit of math aptitude. The upshot was I was a bundle of nerves the whole time. So quickly, I found a boyfriend who grew his own marijuana. You know, he was a pretty functioning alcoholic. But every night I went to my Cheers bar and then went home and got high. And by the end of the four years, I realized, you know, I had a pretty seedy (laughs) private life. But I was looking good on the outside, right? all these opportunities. Right. You're in Stanford
0: University, you got yeah. all this, but at the same time, you're running away from all this underlying pain from, like you were saying earlier, life was supposed to be this way. If you did X, Y, and Z, it was supposed to work out and it doesn't, and it hasn't. And there's a lot of pain in just that existential crisis.
1: Exactly. And having relationships fail, you know, I, 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 was the one who left usually because I was addicted to romantic love and I made the man my higher power. And so after I could pretend and sort of keep the love buzz going for about three or four years, you know, and then right. I'd get bored and leave and find the next one. So that happened at Stanford. Also, I met a guy from Michigan who was not much older than I was all the other boyfriends, live-ins, husbands had been quite a bit older. Mm-hmm. And, came to Michigan married him within six months have no connections for marijuana you know he's a pretty straight guy but he travels so within nine months of marrying my third husband I'm going out to bars picking up men going wow. home with them smoking dope and driving home drunk and lying wow this is this is when <laughs> I said hmm there's something wrong with this picture and went running to a psychologist.
0: Wow, and so you I, started to realize like wait, wait a minute. I'm this this pattern is just repeating. I'm still miserable. I'm still yeah. I would imagine kind of maybe depressed and like kind of in a dark internal space even though externally everything looks okay. But exactly. Yeah, wow. I was
1: I couldn't understand why I couldn't be happy. Why I, you know, I just couldn't under I, it was Everything was too scary. And also the stress, because now I had a a position at a, a local university and I was trying to live up to this Stanford thing. You know, it was it was hell. And that went on for a couple of well, it had been going on for a couple of years. Then I went to see the psychologist. And then he said, Well, you're in you're in the early stages of alcoholism. And I said, Oh, that can't be too bad. And then he said, given your family history and everything, he said, why don't you try having two drinks? No more, no less. And so I did that experiment. I stayed in therapy with him. I did that experiment for six months. And what I discovered was sometimes I'd have the first drink and then the second and the third and the fourth and close down the bar and go home with some stranger. And other times I'd have one or two drinks and stop. And I never could predict which it would be. And Um, so I came to the conclusion that if I put one drink in my body, I mean, the last one was really awful. My husband wasn't even out of town. I called and lied to him, you know, took off my wedding ring, hid it somewhere, couldn't remember where it was. All this, you know, all these lies, all this. And it just hit me this is just going to go on and on and on. And I, if I put one drink in my body, I can't trust myself to take good care of myself or anybody else. And interestingly, he'd been going to Al-Anon because he knew about the disease and he was a counselor also. And one night he said to me, what if this was your last drink? And I thought, hmm. <laughs> and for some reason, I, I was open. And the next day, he went to an Al Anon meeting, and I went to the AA meeting next door. So, January wow. 1986, full of older men smoking, lots of smoke. And I was one of the few women there, if any. And I walked in, and I totally related. I totally related because the common theme was none of us could control what we did if we put alcohol in our bodies. And we had, already had a ton of bad consequences and it was only going to get worse. It became very clear to me.
0: Wow. So you started to really see like, this is a real problem. And once you saw these other people, you maybe realized you weren't quite alone in all of this and kind of reflect back to you, like these people have the same problem I have. And here I am. I'm addicted to alcohol. I'm addicted to love. I'm addicted to sex. I'm just escaping and avoiding all of my pain. And I don't even, in a way, realize it, I guess. until I think you're right.
1: Yeah. That gift of desperation. Yeah. And I'm so grateful that, you know, I I listened. I I guess the emotional pain was just too much. The emotional pain was just too much, too much, too much. And the shame and grossing myself out and... So it was a huge relief to hear people talking about how there was a solution. Yeah. And the next next day I went to a women's meeting and one of the women I met there I still see at meetings which was really wonderful. But it started to sink in, you know, they didn't ask for my phone number or pester me. It wasn't like the other groups where I tried to become a Christian and they all wanted, you know, they would all
0: right, right.
1: pursue me. So it was I don't know. It just it worked for me. And at that point, the 12 steps, you know, was the only game in town. So it took me six months of meetings three times a week. Plus, I was in therapy once a week to believe that I could ask someone to be my sponsor and spend that time and care with me.
0: Wow and to I they, actually know that you may be worthy of that and to be that vulnerable, it kind of really shows how what a wound that you you had that right yeah
1: and everybody says, get a sponsor and you know I was very comfortable around men. I did skied with men, I played tennis with men, you know, I knew how to kind of play the game with men, but with women. I I never had a close female friend except to get high and go take photographs or, you know, get high and go out. I never really yeah. had an honest relationship with other women. And it was daunting because I didn't know how to relate to other women until I hung around with therapy and meetings enough to say, oh, I can be honest. And then I heard them all talking about, well, I called my sponsor and it was so great. She was so helpful to me and blah, blah. And I all of a sudden realized I'd like to have a sponsor. You
0: know? Right. But I, I think what you're talking about is so common for a lot of people. It's interesting how we can maybe relate to one sex or the other in some other way. But then, you know, that vulnerability, like, like you said, you didn't know how to play the game with other women, you knew how to play the game with men or manipulate them or use sex to manipulate them. But with women, you couldn't do that. So you're kind of stuck. You, you had to find a way to be yourself. And yet maybe that wasn't comfortable at the time.
1: Right. So it took six months before I asked someone to be my sponsor. And we'll talk about a spiritual path later, but I, it turned out that this I had a very powerful mentor in grad school who was one of the most together people I'd ever met. And I ended up working for her and her name was Jane. And one day, you know, she'd call me at night and ask questions, you know, are we doing this sort of about the business we were doing? And she would catch me at times when I was drunk or high, but, but she never said anything. And then one day... She looked me in the eye and she said, there's you're so talented, attractive, but there's a piece in there that's just a little. And all of a sudden, I realized this was way before I ever moved to Michigan or got sober. I realized, oh, my God, I'm broken and someone sees it.
0: Oh, I thought
1: no one was seeing it. Then later, when I moved to Michigan, it turns out she had been an early person in the study and the release of A Course in Miracles, which is a spiritual book. And she sent me this condensed copy of it. In those years when I was in Michigan, struggling, I she didn't know. But then I got the audio tape and I started listening to and from work while I was still engaging in all this nasty behavior. And I really credit that that book, (laughs) Love is Letting Go of Fear, I think it was called, to kind of opening a crack in my armor and to her. And what's interesting is when I got into recovery and the woman that I asked to be my sponsor, she also studied A Course in Miracles. Wow. Yeah. And it had only been released for a little over maybe 10 years. If that, right. so it wasn't a big common thing, you know, but that's how these little miracles.
0: Came, yeah. It kind of came together and, and, you know, the universe kind of helping you along in a way exactly. through that, that process. Wow. And it, amazing that one person, I, I think sometimes we don't realize how, what an impact we can have on others, just offering a little bit of hope, even when the person's maybe not ready to receive it, but it stays there for a long time. I. I love that. What yeah. an what an amazing person! What a gift she gave you.
1: She really did. Yes, I love her deeply, and I yeah. stayed in contact with her. So it's been. She's no longer with us on this earth, but she's. But in she my knew heart. your
0: story, and she she was able to hear your story and hear you.
1: Oh yeah, we stayed in contact. We went actually together to the. Of course, in miracles has a related program called Attitudinal Healing that a psychologist, psychiatrist, I think he was, Jerry Jampolsky That was the book that I got was by him because it's a very simplified version of A Course in Miracles. And he was applying those principles with young people who are facing death and dying and their families. And using those principles. So Jane and I went to the training in California to become facilitators for those attitudinal healing groups, which are all over the world, by the way. And recently in my blog, I've been summarizing their 12 principles. So it's a, uh, yeah, it was meant to be.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about moving from this space, you know, the space that you were in where it's kind of very, very dark to the space you are now, this This in between, and I know there's a lot there, you know, it doesn't happen overnight, but I think it's important for people maybe who are struggling to kind of realize like this is a journey, a a process. And I would love to kind of get those in between steps sure, to to talk about them and then get to the point where you're writing your own book, helping people. So let's, let's go on that journey a little bit.
1: Okay. Well, the 12 Steps was the only show in town. Uh, I still was in therapy. So I stayed in my third marriage for a year, just like people suggested. We, every other time, every relationship I left, I took my saddle because I was into horses and my skis, and I left without any preparation. So this time, it's like I'm in recovery. I'm in therapy. We're not going to run. We're going to stay right. and do a group you know uh, group therapy and so on it turned out in the end we did divorce but i felt like it was done in an honorable way
0: yeah in healthy. terms
1: of my own integrity i lived alone for the first time ever about my own little house and and i started having female friends my sponsor She had home meetings, so we would go to a different woman's... I mean, I went to the regular scheduled meetings, but we also had this group that met once a month at a different woman's house. And we would have our chit-chat and order a pizza and then have a meeting and then have dessert and coffee. So that group started meeting in 1987 and wow. we're still meeting every month but now we're on zoom
0: oh that's so, amazing what bo- what bonds yeah. what bonds well, you made
1: yeah. and i you know that is what we don't have in the beginning we only have these fake relationships where we're pretending to be somebody and terrified that if people knew who we really were they'd run away yeah. and so for me a lot of the growth in the program came from Having women around me who liked me exactly as I was, with whom I could share my difficulties, I could hear them, and they were farther down the road than I was. They didn't push any kind of spiritual anything with me, except that I needed a power bigger than my own fear and self-destructive habits, you know, which I could buy, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: But one of the things I wrote about in Worry Less Now, the first one, was the the layers of healing. So the journey I think is trusting. And when we say the third step prayer that, you know, there's a power greater than ourselves and that well, the second that it can restore us to sanity and that I'm gonna, you know, trust the care of this power. To, and I, some people think of it as a contract, like when we do the third step, I decide that my journey in recovery is going to be directed by this caring, loving force, this higher power. And I say that because I think some people are afraid if I get sober and I know all this stuff underneath is sitting there, this gunk and this shame, and if I tear the Band-Aid off, it's going to come rushing out and overwhelm me, and I'll go crazy, or I'll discover that I have been crazy the whole time. I think that's a fear that keeps a lot of us away from therapy and recovery.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So the reason I wrote this journey in chapter five of Worry Less Now was because this higher power regulates the pace of our healing in such an amazing way. I mean, at first, just getting sober is a, is a huge thing, right? So that was layer one, looking at my making a man my higher power, looking at my perfectionism and you know, relying on my achievements to give me a feeling of worth. And pretty quickly at that layer, I realized that my worth has to be established by God and not by anything I do. And I started to warm up to the use of the word god i wasn't crazy about it but when they said it was a group of drunks or good orderly direction and they weren't forcing me to define it i was okay and it was working i wasn't drinking and i wasn't sleeping around you know <laughs> yeah and i i had healthy female friends so that was the first layer and then i I don't know how soon after, maybe a year or two, I heard people talking about adult children of alcoholics. I went on a trip with my parents and they started saying, oh, yeah, he was an alcoholic and that person was an alcoholic. I had no idea. Wow. And so, and a, you know, my father was at the bar a lot of nights and my mother was at home worried. And she didn't drink alone, but if they ever drank together, there were things thrown across the room and very terrifying. And I was the littlest. And you know, so when I went to the adult children of alcoholics meetings and they read those characteristics of children who grow up in those families, it like terrified me. I thought, geez, I check, check, check. I'll never get over these, you know. But, you know, I stayed in therapy and I stayed working the steps and I stayed, you know, going to meetings. I started to pray and meditate. I started to read the literature, you know, to study. I I got into a group for women who love too much, which now is, I think, Sex Addicts Anonymous or something like that. But anyway, it was, you know, a way to... Deal with that. So that was the next layer, you know, the perfectionism, the uh sexuality, the where my worth again, it's always the same thing, isn't it? We're relying on other things to help us feel like we're worthy. Yeah. Which, you know, which is just so simple, right? One one person said in a meeting, I know two things. There's a God or a higher power or a force for good in my life. And I'm not it. You know, right. I'm not. I'm not the source. So, my just, I started surrendering the fact that things that weren't working out in my life, I had a lot of job pressure. I had become an assistant professor by then. Well, then it was the workaholism and the stress. And I didn't have alcohol or drugs or sex. To, to deal to with cope, those
0: yeah to cope with that so, so it's like I, you're kind I, of pulling a layer off at a time and i i think that's yeah. so important to for people to understand it's like we don't just click our fingers and boom we're 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 here we're we're healed or whatever it's this journey that we have to just accept we're part of
1: exactly and you know what really helped me with all of that adult child and perfectionism and stress was Ernie Larson wrote a book in the '80s. I think it was um, Stage Two Relationships. Stage One being getting sober. Stage Two learning how to live. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he laid out these, and I, I put these in this latest book because I think they're so valuable. These patterns that we've learned to cope. You know, one of mine, of course, was the perfectionism and the all those coping strategies that were just not working workaholisms, people pleasing didn't know how to say no no to my boss yeah caretaking putting others ahead of me all those things started coming up and it's interesting when we're in recovery we have a, a posse of women healthy women around me these lessons come up where you can't deal with something it's not like these Things happen, and and that's part of how I wrote the first book. Was okay. Here's the situation that got my ass in a sling, you know. I mean? Right. And and here are the tools and the things that I eventually discovered that helped me through it. And then here's how to use the tools. So because I'm a person who hates emotional pain, and because I my higher power knew I was a hard worker at recovery. I kept getting these wonderful tools that would fly in. Someone would run across a parking lot and tell me about a book that they had just read that they thought I'd love, you know? And then wow. two other people mention the same book in the same month, right? So, you know, I go, All right, all right, I'll read it. You know,
0: it's 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 crazy how some of these pieces start to fall into place as we gain that openness to listen and we become less guarded and less reactive we start to hear the universe speak to us if that makes sense i love yeah. that it, it, there's an openness that we we can start to see these things
1: yeah and all of a sudden you know they've been telling me all along trust the process it's going to be uncomfortable at times but you can look back and see all those things that were uncomfortable that you worked through and now you're stronger and so on and You know, pretty soon, I don't think I ever face a healing challenge going, oh, goody. (laughs) Because I've talked about the two layers. Well, maybe four or five years into recovery, the third layer appeared that I didn't even know was there. And I had been... With my sponsor, we were talking, and I said, Oh, I saw this amazing show last night on date rape, and I'm so glad that never happened to me. And then all of a sudden, my the elevator drop happened in my stomach. And I thought, Oh my God, something did happen. And I had I'd had these dreams of being smothered and and that with the promiscuity and so on, you know, my a couple of therapists had suggested maybe, you know, something had happened. So I got a new therapist with the approval of my old therapist, who was very, very, very good. And she walked me through the whole healing process. And she had a group of women who'd been, you know, sexually touched, abused, whatever. And, and we went through a lot of healing. So I did discover that my father still, at that time, was hugging my sisters and me. I'm the youngest of three sisters, and I have an oldest brother, too. And the way he would hug us, which no one ever thought anything about, he'd put his hand on the side of our breast, like his thumb, and cop a little feel. And my sisters would say, oh, isn't that cute? Isn't that funny? Because, you know, he was... You know, in that family sculpting thing you do, he was like the center and he was the charismatic, loving, funny one. And everybody loved him and he, mom loved, you know, so he was always perfect. So then I started waking up. Well, shit, no wonder I'd been divorced all these times. No wonder I was sexually right. And it wasn't just that, but there were other memories of, you so know, waking that, up with a but... hand on my breast and stuff like that. So she led me through a beautiful beautiful healing and there was so you a book.
0: as you went through this process you were able to start to see this abuse that that happened to you you were open enough to be able to to say you know this this wasn't right and this did not feel good for me this was <laughs> a, a violation of of myself
1: not at first
0: well not at, at first first
1: yeah. I mean, this is where trusting the process, when we have a new healing frontier come up. And I, I really believe that we, the whole journey is about removing the barriers. And this is more what the second book is about. Removing the barriers that have closed our hearts and made us closed-hearted, afraid, grasping, unable to give and receive love. In our. I really believe our journey here is to open our hearts to be more giving and loving with boundaries and, you know, to remove the barriers. So if you think of each of those layers of removing the alcoholism, which kept me bitter and removing the perfectionism, which kept, you know, and then removing this. But it's not fun when we first see these things. It's shocking. Very shocking. And that was a really hard, hard thing. One of the books about sexual touching and so on suggested, and this was really helpful, that I did not have to discover the exact moment or event or who or what or why, which is what a lot of people want to do, because somehow, you know, that analytic minds, if we can figure it out, we can fix it. Well, we can never go back. Right. Right. So the approach that we had was to heal all the feelings around it, you know? So I wrote the enrage. I finally got in touch with my anger about lacking power, right? Yeah. People walking all over me. And I wrote the angry letter that I never mailed to my father and let it rip. And I read it with my group, you know, and we did. And finally... And this was one of the hardest things I ever did. Thank God my father was still alive. I went home for Thanksgiving. I had written him ahead of time and asked if I could have some of his time. And I we got in a room alone. I left the door open. <laughs> and I said, you know, when you hug me and touch me in that way, it makes me really uncomfortable, and I'd like you to stop. And he said, oh, okay. And he never did it again. Wow. So it wasn't about some cataclysmic thing about blaming them and that was it's not where the healing came. The healing came in me claiming the power to set yeah. the boundary.
0: You took your power back.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was. And, you know, you wouldn't think that would be a hard thing to do, but boy, that's a tough thing. And then, oh, yeah, yeah. And then we learned to say no in other cases, like when my boss at work was having me take on extra responsibilities. You know, I finally kind of walked that, worked that through with my steps and my sponsor, my therapist, and then said, you know, here's what I would like in compensation time for doing this extra work. You know, I was able to do that, claim my power.
0: Wow. What, what, what a journey that you've been through to, you know, you know, from getting sober to learning how to live, to let go of perfectionism, like you said, and then learning how to live and have your power and own your, your life and be in the driver's seat in a way, becoming now you're in the driver's seat of your life. And that's a good place to be.
1: Exactly. And here's what happened with relationships. I stayed out of a relationship for my first year. Uh, My husband and I got a divorce very easy. Shortly after that, oh, I hurt my back. There was a lot of physical pain in my early sobriety. And I think that helped me surrender because I could do nothing about it. But anyway, I'd hurt my back. I went to a meeting. This man offered me his chair. And then a bunch of us went out for coffee afterwards. And I really thought this guy was nice. So I gave him my phone number. And then for the first time in my life, I went really slowly. (laughs) I stayed hanging in with my girlfriends. I kept up my program. I kept up my therapy. I only allowed myself to see him twice a week because with my former addiction, I would crawl in the man's back pocket and live my life from there. Right. Yeah. Make him the higher power. And I didn't do any of those things. I was terrified because... I felt myself falling in love with this man, and I had such a horrible track record. But with all the healing and the therapy, we did get married. And we've been married for 33 years, I think.
0: Wow, that is awesome. And
1: I don't know if my higher powers said, well, here's a woman who really needs a man who's kind of solid and easy to live with. And he's a wonderful guy. And I'm very, very happily married and happy with him so the story has you know for those who are looking for the relationship miracles (laughs) they They do happen happen.
0: yeah Yeah. with a lot of work like what you said though but you invested in this and you worked on this and it didn't just happen I mean part of it is you creating the space for it to happen I I think And, and and knowing that like if we want to live a good life that's good for us it's work it's hard it's it's challenging it's effort but there's a roadmap there's a direction there's tools out there which kind of gets me to your books and writing your books and putting them out there let's let's talk about that a a little bit we're getting close on our time here so let's talk about your books and and then you know go from there
1: yeah well there's One overall generalization I think we can make, at least from my life, when the shit's hitting the fan and things aren't going the way we want or we're feeling awful, instead of trying to fix that thing that's the quote-unquote source of our discomfort, we need to put our attention on working our program. So up the meetings, up the prayer and meditation, look at which steps are relevant and work them, (laughs) pray and meditate, service. And when we put the effort in there, these other things get taken care of.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Is that counterintuitive or what? I mean, that's completely
0: counterintuitive.
1: Yeah. So that's why the first book was these tools, because... I had been able to discover so many tools, some of which are from the program, but most of them are not. I learned them in therapy or they came along, you know, right out of the blue. So, but there are 50 of them. So each one is what I think is a way of removing the blockages to love, opening our hearts. And I came to think of that more and more, or streaming love into our, ourselves, loving power to dissolve the blockages. So, you know, most of the tools, there's energy tools, a tapping, Reiki, there's cognitive tools with the reframing and so on, and affirmations. There's a lot about that. So, but it's all about changing our mind, right? Flowing good stuff into our minds to crowd out the negative stuff. And so that's why I did the 50 tools, because I thought a lot of people don't have access to them. A lot of therapists are using 50 Ways to Worry Less now because it has very specific directions for a lot of tools. So you don't have to take your time in the office to explain it to the client. It's just a yeah, look on page,
0: you know. It's very practical, which I really like. It's like, this is action you can take now, right? Yeah. This is something yeah. you can do right now. Yeah. yeah. And you can find the things that work for you. To, to to be able to change your
1: life. Exactly. And that in itself is empowering.
0: Yeah. I am
1: not a victim here. I, I can go, I can do this. I can listen to a podcast. I can pray. I can, you know, there's a million yeah. tools. Then the reason the Love More came, I had just been writing a lot of blogs and other writing for my marketing, the first book, right?
0: <laughs> right, yeah.
1: And I started seeing that opening our hearts was really a great metaphor for healing, spiritual, personal, emotional healing. And that what was helpful would be first, I put in those six tools from stage two recovery, those six patterns. So there's all about what things close our hearts. So those patterns. Other whispered lies, which carried over from the first book, but all this negativity growing up, you know, the ACE adverse childhood experiences, all that. Then, what does it look like to open our hearts? And then it's mostly case studies of people illustrating specific tools, but not 50 of them. Each, there are fewer tools, but more elaborate descriptions of the situation, how the person used the tools and how they helped heal that person and the situation. So what I did was I combined, you know, the four aspects that they do the 10th step on. What am I afraid of? You know, how am I being dishonest to myself? Uh, How am I being selfish and resentful? So I kind of created a new little inventory of those four Plus those six patterns from stage two relationships. So where am I off base in what I'm believing? You know, and then so like
0: a like a almost like a roadmap to kind of walk you through this process and you can kind of see where you're stuck and where it's exactly. not working. And here's some tools that can help you move through that process and you can see an example of it. Which I think is exactly really really helpful.
1: Yeah, I I like it because it's consistent with program stuff. You can easily see, and I think if smart recovery or lots of recovery, you can see it's always looking about how we've been blocking ourselves, yeah, from from being loving, able to give love and receive love. I mean, <laughs>
0: you know, that's that's it.
1: Yeah. So and then the last chapter, I just. Put the 12 steps, but in the language of the open hearted, closing hearted aspect. So, yeah, it's doing really well and uh, gotten good reviews. And that's I've awesome. Been, I will make an offer to your listeners. I had extra copies of 50 Ways to Worry Less now printed. And so I have many of them and I'm willing to send them to people for free. Uh, wow. You know, I'll even pay them up postage. So, I want to give you my. Email address if somebody would like to have a free copy and I'll autograph it to them and <laughs> mail wow, it.
0: Wow, and... Gigi, that is so yeah. generous of yeah. you. Yeah. yeah, well, what we can do is we can put that in in the show notes and we can put a, a link in there so people Great. can go to the Addicted Mind and and do that. I I that thank you, Gigi. That is that is yeah. so so nice. So we'll put that there. So before we wrap up, I always like to ask this question. That's if, if someone out there is struggling, maybe they're in that space where they don't think they're worthy or they're stuck. and you could tell them one thing, what would you want them to to know?
1: Yeah, this is a key piece of the second book. Inside each of us is this divine spark, which has been referred to or a, a beautiful heart of love. and that has never been ruined no matter what we did or think, or anyone else did to us. It is always uncorrupted in there, but we need to open ourselves to live from that place. And that's by getting rid of our fears, resentments, and so on. So never feel like you've ruined your best self. It's still there.
0: (laughs) Oh, thank you, Gigi. Where can people get a hold of you? How can they find
1: you? Sure. Well, it's GIGI. Langer, L-A-N-G-E-R.com is my website. There's a contact form. But if you want the book, you can do email for me or email me at glanger2202 at gmail.com.
0: Awesome. And once again, I'm going to put that all on the show notes as well. So people can go to theaddictedmind.com. Gigi, once again, I love your spirit. I just love your openness and uh, it's so fun to have you on the podcast again and just to share your story and and give hope to people.
1: Thank you so much for your service and for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you. You too.
0: All right, everyone, thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast as usual. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com, so check them out and take Gigi up on her offer for a free copy of her book, 50 Ways to Worry Less Now. It's a great book, really practical, highly recommend it. And if you got a lot out of this episode, please share with a friend. And don't forget, click the subscribe button. All right, everyone, have a wonderful rest of your day. And I will talk to you on the next episode.